Have you ever gone somewhere, shown up, only to find out that you were wearing the absolute wrong thing? Isn't that terrible? You know, maybe, maybe you thought it was, uh, you know, a black tie type affair, and it turns out it was something very casual, and you're way overdressed, or perhaps... You thought it was casual. This might be even worse. You know, you showed up in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and it was a black tie affair. Yikes! It's so awkward and and you just hate to show up wearing the wrong things. You don't want to wear... That's one of the reasons why I love our tradition at church. I, I, I pretty much have it, you know, said every week. I, I know what I'm going to wear. I've got a black robe. It's, it's pretty easy for me. I don't have to worry about wearing the wrong thing. But wearing the wrong thing can be a problem. Last time that I was in this pulpit, we covered the fact that Christ is our life. We have been raised with him. We are seated with him and we will be glorified with him. Christ is our life. As such... Paul tells us in chapter 3 that there are certain things we should be wearing and certain things we shouldn't be wearing. Now, of course, I'm not talking specifically about clothes. Whatever you happen to wear to church or wear to your job or wear around the house, that's not what Paul's talking about here. I hope that you're comfortable here at church. Whatever you want to wear, it doesn't matter to me what you wear when you come to church. Uh, As long as you don't wear the black robe, because I don't want somebody wearing the same thing I'm wearing. but, uh, But what he is concerned about, what he is concerned about, is not so much our clothes, but the mindset and the actions and the heart's attitude with which we are clothed. And there are certain things he says that we need to put on and put off. And if we put on the right things and put off the wrong things, then we will look as though we belong. And if we fail to do this, then it will mark us out as being wildly out of place. He speaks about these things in verses 5 through 11 first, dealing with Those things that we are to put off, we'll cover that this morning. Next week, we'll cover the things that we should put on. But today, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, please follow along as I read from the inspired word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, And obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, 
circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that today you would speak to us through your word preached by the power of your spirit. Where there is not life, we pray that you would bring about life. And Lord, for those of us who know you as our Savior and rejoice in that fact, we pray that this morning might bring us closer to you and as a result, closer to one another, that we might more truly be the body of Christ here at Calvary. Be with us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the internet is a great tool. It enables us to get all kinds of information. I like information. And it allows us to accumulate all sorts of information about all kinds of ridiculous things. And some important things as well. I, I, I like trivia, so a lot of these little trivial facts I find interesting. But I saw one the other day that I thought was really neat. They, they had a study that they had done on internet searches. And so what Bible verses are the most searched for internet Bible verses? Oh, that was interesting. These, these are the Bible verses that the most people are looking into, that they're pulling up, that they want to look at, that they want to see. I, I thought that was interesting because it gives us uh, at least a glimpse into what people in general, if not the church as a whole, um, really are, are looking to Scripture for. The first one, pretty easy. If we all had to guess, I'm guessing a number of us would guess correctly, out of all the verses in the Bible, the one most commonly looked up, John 3.16. Not that hard. We've all seen the football games with the guy with the crazy hair, the sign behind the goalposts, right? John 3.16, very commonly referred to, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life. The next couple were interesting, I thought. Number two and three were Jeremiah 29, 11 and Romans 8, 28. Those two verses say, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then the Romans 8 passage, We know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You notice how both of these deal with, with God's provision for us, his protection of us, his plan for us, and the fact that, that we can be confident that going forward we will be okay because of God's plans for us. There are other ones also, in there, like, like Philippians 4.13, uh, I, I know I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, very much, I can do this, I'll be all right, things will be okay. Those are the types of verses people tend to look to, verses for reassurance. And that's good because the Bible is indeed full of reassuring thoughts. It, it is one of the functions of Scripture to reassure us of who God is and of who we can be in Christ Jesus. That's a good thing. But there's a certain word that doesn't show up in this list very often. 
In fact, you have to go all the way down to the 19th most popular verse searched before you find this word. Any, any guesses what word I'm thinking of? Sin. Yeah, we, we don't like to talk about sin, do we? We don't like to think about sin. We don't like to talk about sin. And yet it isn't until that 19th, 19th verse that we see it. It's a reality, though, isn't it? We need to talk about sin because it is ever-present in our lives. I was thinking about the words to the hymn we, we just sang and those final words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Do you ever feel that? I know I do. Prone to wander. You know, I know I should do this, and yet I find myself doing this. I know that it would be best if I went this way, and yet instead I find myself wandering off this way. That's the reality of life. That is sin. Paul had none of the qualms that we tend to have about talking about sin. He was more than happy to talk about it because he knew it was a very real problem, a problem that needed talking about. And so he tells us very directly what we need to do with sin. We need to get rid of it. We need to put it off. And specifically, we see here him talking about what we need to put off, first of all. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of all the sins in the world, and all the things that we need to stop doing, and as long as we're not doing these things, we're perfectly fine. No, that's not the case. But it is a very instructive list, I think. He actually gives two sets of things that we need to be putting off. And we need to be careful at this. Often, I think, we look at sins, and maybe we have two sets like this, and, and we'll find that, yeah, we really agree. We, we need to put off these ones and really need to focus on these ones. But maybe we don't focus on these other ones quite as much. I think that's kind of a tendency that we fall into within the church. Whatever our sins are that we tend to commit more readily, you know, maybe those aren't quite as important for us to focus on. But that other guy's sins, my goodness, those are really, really bad ones. We need to be careful not to do that. So when you're hearing these lists... Don't focus on just one and not the other. And don't focus on just these and say, well, since my personal sin wasn't one of these, then it doesn't really apply to me. I'm, I'm all right. No, we need to put off all sin. But these ones in particular, he points us to. In verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And the first thing he points to, and talking about these earthly things, earthly in contrast to back in verse 2 where he spoke of the things that are above, the first thing, as it is in many of his lists of vices throughout Scripture, sexual immorality. Our culture is hypersexualized. I don't need to tell you that. It's obvious to anybody who has eyes to see. You walk through the supermarket and you look at the magazines that are at the checkout counter. You turn on your television and, and even apart from the television shows that are on, even in prime time, you look at the commercials that pop on. I, I, I watch a, a 
football game or a baseball game with with my son and and I have to change the channel during the commercials because of of the content of the commercials it's it's incredible but that is the water in which we swim that is the world that we live in and we need to realize that and the church is sometimes I think in reaction to that, reacted in such a way as to say, well, well, the whole area of sexuality is something that we just can't even talk about that. We need to, that's got to be off limits because it's so messed up, we just need to not talk about it. We need to be careful not to do that, I think, first of all. We need to be careful because sexuality is, is a good gift given to us by God that it might be enjoyed within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. It is a good gift. It has been used very wrongly in our world, and that's what it's talking about here. The Greek word that stands behind this is porneo. We get our word pornography from it. But this isn't just talking about pornography. It's talking about any sexual activity outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's what he's talking about here, and he is saying that it is wrong. It needs to be put to death. It needs to be put off completely. It's the kind of thing that deals not only with our activity, actually. This is where it gets real difficult. Even with our thoughts and our heart. For Jesus said, I I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's not just actions that matter. Certainly actions do matter. But it goes beyond actions, even to our hearts' intents, and even to our thought life. And that's why Paul doesn't stop just with this phrase, sexual immorality. He goes on to impurity, passion, evil desire. Now passion and desire, these are things that could be a good thing. Um, we can be passionate about things. We can have desires that are good. We should have desires for good things. But what he's talking about here again is, is within this context specifically of inappropriate sexual desires. And, and it's interesting that culture says largely that you are made up, you, you, your identity is defined by your desires, right? It largely says that, you know, I, I was born that way. I, I can't help it. I have these thoughts and these desires, and so, so I need to obviously follow through on them. But the Word of God tells us instead that desires ought to be mastered, that they are not to be allowed to to dictate who we are. Our desires ought not define us. Who we are ought to define our desires. And so it is that we who are children of the living God, we who are called by the name of Christ, ought to have our desires brought into line with that We who bear the name of Christ ought to live as those who are called by that name. Another thing our culture tells us, it tells us that, you know, 
My body is my own, and I can do what I want with it as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, right? Who are you to tell me what I should do with my body? It's mine, my personal property. I can do what I want. Again, this stands in contrast to what the Word of God has for us. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Flee sexual immorality for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. See, we need to use our bodies to the glorification of God. Whenever we're, we're asking a question, is this something that my body should be doing? Perhaps a good question to ask is, well, does this glorify God? Does this please God? Does this make much of God? Does this exalt his glory for my body to be doing what it is doing right now? And if the answer to that question is no, then you ought not to be doing that. It's a pretty simple diagnostic. Too often, I think, I know, uh, I, I know this is definitely the case in talking with, with younger folks, teenagers and such, and, and, and young adults, but I, I, I trust it, you know, it's the case throughout life even. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of areas of sin that we say, well, well, how far can I go and it's not sin? That's the question that people ask a lot. You know, how, how far can I go? What, what can I do and still be okay? You know, because, because I really want to go this far. But I don't want to sin, so how far can I go? And, and it really kind of betrays a false thinking, a wrong way of thinking. Because what you're saying is, is how close can I tiptoe up to the line of sin and, and lean over and bend over it and, and not be in trouble. You know, it's kind of like if there was a cliff. You know, I walk, I come to the Grand Canyon, and how, how close can I get to the edge and lean over and, and have somebody holding me just barely so that I'm, I'm barely not cascading to my death? That's my goal. I want to almost die, but not quite. See how foolish that is? Now, now, some of us are more adventuresome than some and others, and, and, but, but the goal must never be, how close can I get to dying without dying? That's just foolishness. And yet that's the mindset that we often have with our morality. And he speaks here of covetousness, which is idolatry. That also needs to be put off. And, and really, I think what he's saying here is specifically that that undergirds this whole area as it does so many other areas of sin. Covetousness is wanting those things that that are not our own. It's wanting something that doesn't belong to us. It is desiring something so much that we find that we want it and we can no longer be content with who we are in Christ Jesus We can no longer be content with God alone. We need this other thing. And that's really what is happening in this area of life. 
Sexuality is the idol of our age, without question. But there's another list he gives here, this other list, and it deals with how we relate to one another. Specifically within the church, I think he's talking here too, but that's not restricted just to the church. He says in verse 8, and now you must put them all away. Anger and wrath. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Wait a second. Weren't there times that God is angry? Doesn't he display his wrath? And indeed he does, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, actually, about the fact that God is a wrathful God. Well, how could it be wrong for us to be angry and wrathful? There are times that call for anger, and indeed there are. But we need to be careful, because our so-called righteous anger is almost always tinged with self-interest. We cannot step out of our personal perspective. We see all things from our own eyes, and it is hard for us to see them from someone else's perspective, much less from an overarching perspective that sees not in any way biased. And so we need to be careful about anger. We need to have our first reaction be to put it off. We must not seek wrath but leave that to God. And so he says also put off malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. When he says this obscene talk, he's not just talking about uh, curse words, if you will. What he's talking about is the kind of language that belittles, demeans, ridicules, embarrasses others. That's what he's talking about here. That's what the connotation is that lies behind the word here. It's the kind of language that we far too often use. You know, I'm just making a joke. I'm just kind of making fun of somebody. But those things can hurt. Those things are sharp. They're biting. And we need to be careful that we are not the ones who are using this kind of language, making fun of people, belittling them. And do not lie to one another, he says. Don't lie. Lying is being dishonest. That's what he's saying. Don't be dishonest. Don't deceive one another. Now, there's all kinds of ways we can deceive one another. One is just flat out saying one thing when it's completely not true. Um, you know, uh, we all know what that is. I don't need to give examples of what that would be. But, but there are other ways that we can sometimes do things that are still covered by this admonition here. For instance, sometimes we say something that is, well, it's technically true, knowing full well that it gives an impression that is 180 degrees opposite to what we are saying or what is really true. Like, for instance, let's say there was a piece of cake left on the counter, and it was the last piece of cake, and and I decided I was going to eat that piece of cake. And so I ate it, and there were a couple crumbs left over when I was done, and so I washed the crumbs down the drain. And someone came in and said, Pete, did you eat the last piece of cake? And I'd say, no, I did not. 
knowing in my mind as I'm rationalizing this, well, I ate that piece, but, you know, there, there were some crumbs left over at the end, right? And I washed them down the drain. So technically, I didn't eat the last piece of cake, right? I mean, technically what I'm saying is true here. I mean, that's a silly one. But we do those kinds of things. We play those kinds of word games. He's saying, don't deceive. Don't, don't try to make people think one thing when something else is true. That's what he's talking about. And that extends also to the way we present ourselves. I think this might be the place where we are most guilty of this. We want to portray ourselves in a certain light. And so we show up for church on Sunday morning and we maybe put on a tie and dress, dress up and we have a smile on our face and we sing our hymns and we read our Bible and we sit through a sermon and then we leave on Sunday morning after having a donut and some coffee and then we live in a way that totally betrays everything the Bible would teach. And then we come back the next Sunday and play the part of a good Christian at church with our tie on and our hymns and our Bible and our smile and our coffee and our donut. And we get on this treadmill where we pretend that everything's great and I'm this wonderful Christian. When in reality, there's deep areas of sin in my life. What I should do in such a scenario, confident in the grace of God, present in Christ Jesus, confident that there is forgiveness for my sins, I should be willing to come to my brother, to come to my sister, and to say, I'm struggling in this area. Will you help me? Will you, will you hold me accountable in this area? Will you ask me next week if I've sinned in this way? Will you, will you come alongside me? Will you study the word of God with me? Will you spend time with me, helping me to, to conquer this area of sin in my life? Because it is something I'm struggling with. It is, it is an area that I've tried to defeat on my own, but I can't. And I need your help. When's the last time you asked a brother or sister in Christ for that kind of help? When is the last time that you admitted your own sinfulness in areas that you might not really want to talk about? That is the kind of openness and honesty that we are to have within the body of Christ is the kind of honesty that is called for even in this command that we not lie. Telling the truth can be painful, it can be inconvenient, it can be costly, but it can also be helpful in edifying and it can build up the body of Christ. So let us be a truth-telling church. For none of us is perfect. To varying degrees, we have all failed to follow these edicts. So let us put them off. We've looked at what we put off. 
now more briefly why we put it off. In verse 6, we read, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now that's another unpleasant thought, a thought that our culture doesn't like to talk about. Even within the church, we don't like to talk about that. We say, well, wait, isn't God loving? God is love, we read in 1 John chapter 4. And indeed he is, but this does not negate his wrath. His wrath, in fact, is a function of his love. For, as one commentator puts it, God's wrath is his love for holiness and truth and justice. It is because God passionately loves purity and peace and perfection that he reacts angrily toward anything and anyone who defiles them. God is love, but the wrath of God stands right beside that love. And and we don't need to point out, I I hope, that that his wrath is not just, just this malicious, mean-spirited, angry reaction to things where he's, he's just angry. Oh, I can't believe it, like, like my wrath is. Rather, it is a settled commitment for true holiness and justice and goodness and against wickedness, against evil, against sin. How could he be a loving God if he were to let sin run unchecked for all of history? And so he has not, and instead does something about it. But it's not just a a matter of fearing God's wrath. We see in verse 7 that in these things you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And then in verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. See, he's saying, you, you used to walk in sin. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers, those who have trusted in Christ Jesus. He says, before you trusted in Christ Jesus, you walked in sin. You lived according to the flesh. You did whatever you wanted to do. But now you are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come, he writes in 2 Corinthians 5. And in Galatians 2, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. How can we who died to sin still live in it, he asks in Romans. If we have trusted in Christ, we are indeed a new person. We cannot go on sinning. And then finally, he says in verse 11, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. I think this deals specifically with the points that he was making about the way we deal with one another within the church, the way we treat one another. He says the old boundaries, the old old borders between people groups have been annihilated, no longer Are there the good guys and the bad guys? No longer is there the inside group and the outside group. No longer are are there them and us. But rather, we are now one body. People who appear very different from us are now in actuality closer to us in relationship than we could have possibly ever imagined because we are one in Christ Jesus. And this is yet another reason we need to put off sin because we are one body.
We've looked at what, we've looked at why. Let us turn our attention now to how. For this is the real question, isn't it? How do we put off our sin? How do we do that? We all want to do that. We want to get rid of sin. And we've tried to get rid of sin, but how do we do it? Well, it was right at the very first of the passage. Put to death. That's what we need to do. We need to put it to death, those things that are earthly. The King James Version says, mortify those things. John Owen, the old Puritan, famously put it, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. You see, what what we need to do is realize the importance of it. That's how we get motivated to kill sin, is by realizing how important it is, realizing that it will indeed kill us. It is that important that we put sin to death. Jesus realized this importance when he said in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. This is hyperbolic language, of course, but but he's making the point here that sin is deadly. And we need to take drastic action when life is on the line. Do you remember the story of Aaron Ralston? On April 26, 2003, he went hiking in the Blue John Canyon in Utah. And uh, he just went out for a nice day of hiking and, and rappelling. And as he rappelled down into a narrow canyon, he descended and and a rock that was there, a, a, an 800-pound boulder slipped and, and rolled down and pinned his arm against the wall of the canyon. And so now here he was, stuck in the canyon, no way to get out, tried moving it however he could, couldn't hit. The boulder was too big, he had no hope. He screamed for help, but nobody was near. It was a remote location. He had told no one where he was going. Nobody would come looking for him. He had with him two burritos and 12 ounces of water. That's not going to last you very long. A day, two days, three days. Four days in, he's realizing that he is going to die. He no longer has food. He no longer has water. He no longer has hope. So what did he do? He decided that he would remove his arm. But he couldn't at first because the only tool he had was a little pocket knife. And there's no way he could cut through the bones with a pocket knife. It came to him, well, what I need to do here is I need to use the torque from my arm being pinned snap the bones in my arm and then cut off my arm below the elbow with the pocket knife. Which he did. And then he rappelled out of the canyon and walked to a place where somebody found him 
gave him help, and his life was spared. It's an incredible story. I can't imagine. I mean, he cut off his arm with a pocket knife. I can't imagine doing that. And I'm sure he couldn't imagine doing it five days before he did it. But his situation changed. You see, he knew that that was his only hope of life. He was going to die. And so he took drastic action. And so it is with our sin. We need to come to the point where we realize that sin is deadly. It will dehumanize us. It will will cause us to be less human. And if we continually choose it, God eventually will give give us over to it. We need to realize that we are created in the image of God. And those of us who have put on the new self realize, as we see in verse 10, that it is being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. What a wonderful truth that is. Beloved, we are God's children now, John tells us. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. That's the final way that we defeat sin. It's by seeing Christ as he truly is. By seeing him for all his glory, by seeing him for all his grace, by seeing him for all his goodness and what he has done for us. And realizing that even in the midst of all my sin and all my ugliness and all of my depravity, still Christ has loved me. And so, if I too love him, I will live for him. For Christ is all and in all. He is supreme. He is before all things. And so let us put off that sin, that sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for. Please pray with me. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would indeed give us a right perspective. Help us to see things as they truly are. May we see our sin in all of its ugliness. And may we see Christ Jesus in all of his beauty. And may you do that work in our heart even now. We ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.